Now, I hold in my hand the Texas soft drink of choice for a lot of people. And uh, of course, there's Dr. Pepper and Diet Dr. Pepper. Now, uh, I love this. I don't drink it very often, um, but I love this. But um, this one right here, let me just ask, does anybody like this more than this? Other than your sister-in-law. Raise your hand if you'd be so bold. Okay. You like Diet Dr. Pepper more than regular Dr. Pepper. Well, that's wrong. It's wrong. That is not right. You do not like that. That is not right. This is not Dr. Pepper. This is Dr. Pepper. This has chemicals in it. No, no I'm not looking for a clap. Don't, don't do that. You're going to ruin my point. I've done this message three times. This first time anybody's clapped for it. Anyway. So if I just say you're wrong, you don't like Dr. Pe- Diet Dr. Pepper. You don't like this. That is not right. What's wrong with that statement? What's wrong with that? It's a, it's a taste. Yeah, it's your opinion. It's your taste. You, I can't tell you, no, you don't like that. You, you, you don't like it. It's wrong for you to like it. And that's a ridiculous statement. You can like it. I can think it's not any good. And you can think it's great. And that's fine. It's a matter of taste. And in church life, we've talked about this before, there are matters of taste. We started out with one type of music. Some of you love that. And then we went all the way to a hymn, old hymn. And some of you like that. Every once in a while, not as much anymore, but people used to do this to me. They used to come up to me and go, Brother Ron. And when you say that, I go, I'm thinking, your Southern Baptist is really showing. <laughs> Brother Ron, I don't know about the drums and the whole guitar thing, these new songs. I don't know if that's right. And I just go, well, sounds like you have a different taste. I don't tell them, well, you're wrong. They're kind of telling me I'm wrong. But I don't say you're wrong, but it's a matter of taste. The clothes I wear. I usually don't tuck my shirt on in unless it's Easter. Okay, it's just, I don't like to do it. I buy shirts that are made not to be tucked in. And I was every once in a while, somebody would say, yep, you know, it sure look better if you tuck that shirt in. And I want to say something to them sometimes, but I don't. It's a matter of taste. But when it comes to scripture and our faith, there are also matters of teaching. And that's much bigger than taste. It's important. Important doctrines, important teachings. You know, we just observed communion. And some people have, some churches have a different interpretation of what communion means, but that's a teaching and it's very important that we have one. But what we would not say, or I would not say, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian because you don't view it that way. You interpret it differently. Again, it's very important. And I I think uh, to the best of our ability, we're attempting to interpret scripture the best we can. Other issues, church leadership. We have a, a board of elders that is uh, the final authority in our church. Some churches do use deacons. 
some ch- churches uh, use the congregation to some extent, or the senior pastor is the sole authority. We would say, we believe scripture teaches a plurality of elders, but it doesn't mean they're not Christians because they don't share that position. Again, those are important issues. Baptism, gifts, all those things are important. But you can be a Christian and have a difference of opinion. But then there are what we call tenets. These are the big ones. They define what Christianity is. And if you don't ascribe to that, then it's not Christianity. So let's look at the big gospel story. We look at this every once in a while, um, just so we're reminded of what the the whole gospel is. And I say the whole gospel uh, because typically we'll think of the gospel, a lot of people will anyway, just as the salvation aspect of the gospel, which is uh, very, very true, but there's a bigger picture here. And if you don't believe me, think about Jesus sending his disciples out to preach the gospel. He told them to go and preach the gospel. Well, there was no death, burial, and resurrection at that point. So what were they preaching? I believe they were preaching this. The creation. In the beginning, God. Barashith Elohim bara. In the beginning, God created. Theology, the study of God, that God purposefully and willfully created this world and created mankind. And he is the one and only. We're monotheist. We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but they are all consummate of what we call God. So God is the Father, God is the Son, God is the Spirit. And that's a huge doctrine. That's a tenet, that's a non-negotiable. We have to believe in God and we have to believe that he is the creator. And that's called theology, all right? Secondly, there's the fall. There's a doctrine called hamartiology, which is the study of sin. And the fall is this. God created the world in perfect harmony, but through man's choice, he chose to sin, and in it came sin and corruption and chaos that we still live with. And lest you think, like I did when I was a child, and my children used to think, well, why do we have to be responsible for what Adam and Eve did? Well, we each one have made the decision to go our own direction. We've all sinned, the Bible tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. So creation, fall. We broke fellowship. We broke relationship with God Almighty. And in his holiness, in his purity, in his justice, in his divinity, He prepared a way to deal with the sin, not to just nod at it, wink at it, or think that it'll get better, but he, in his holiness, he determined that sin must be judged, but that he would let Jesus, Jesus came in the fullness of God and lived the life that we we didn't live and died the death that we should have died. And now through his death, burial, and resurrection that pays the price of our sin that covers our sin and we are credited with the righteousness of Christ Jesus we are redeemed not because we've earned it or deserved it but by grace through faith which leads us to restoration at peace with God and right relationship because of Jesus big gospel the tenets and it all happens and it all centers around this other doctrine It's called Christology. 
If theology is the study of God, guess what Christology is? The study of Christ. And this is an essential, an imperative doctrine. And Paul goes to great lengths to let us know this. And we're going to see who Jesus is in just a moment. And this, uh, to me, is the single best passage of Scripture for us to understand the magnitude and the majesty of who Christ is. Now, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting as Paul is writing this letter, and we'll look at it here in just a moment in Colossians chapter 1. He uses some language that we probably don't catch as, um, you know, really controversial, but it would have been in the first century. He's writing to the church of Colossae. And Colossae is a small church, small group of people, probably less than 50 people, uh, somewhere probably in that neighborhood. We don't know exactly how many. And they have heard the gospel uh, through probably Paul's preaching, uh, maybe in Ephesus. We know there's a revival in Ephesus, and that's where Epaphras meets Paul. And he, matter of fact, he's in prison with Paul, and Paul teaches him. And Paul uh, writes a letter for him because Epaphras tells what's happened in Colossae, this church plant, so to speak, this new work. And this is happening sometime, this letter is early, um, somewhere between 58 and 62, 63 AD. So it's uh, within 30 years of the death of Christ. And so here, this new church that Paul's never been to, that sprung up because of the power of the gospel, because of Epaphras, and people like Philemon, which, which by the way, Philemon, the letter, the small letter in the Bible, we gotta go home and read it. You, 27 chapters, you can say you read a, chap, a book of the Bible uh, today. But that letter was sent, they were sent together. Paul has Epaphras take the letter of Philemon because just where Philemon lives, Colossae. So he takes that letter back and he addresses some of the bad doctrine, so to speak, that's coming into the church and he's, encouraging them, drawing them back to the centrality of Christ. And that's what he's doing in chapter one. So he uses this language where he says, Jesus is Lord and the gospel is being preached. The, the good news is being made known to the, to the world. And there's Christ, the son of God. He's the Lord. Now, again, we're used to that terminology and it's not as shocking to us. But in the first century, that kind of language would have been shocking because it would have been reflective of what was going on in the culture. Um, you know, there, was, there were the Caesar, the Roman Empire was in charge at this point. And if you go back to Julius Caesar, uh, Julius Caesar, uh, after he was killed and they were having the, the sort of the games, the funeral for Julius Caesar, a meteorite shower happened and they determined that Julius Caesar must be a god. He's really gods. He's a god now. And so they called him the God. He was one of the gods. And his predecessors kind of picked up on that. Like Augustus, who was actually a, a nephew, it, was, it helped him to establish a lot of clout by saying, Augustus, son of God. Matter of fact, I have a first century coin right here. You can't really make it out, uh, but there, it's a picture of the emperor here. And then it has Diva Phila, the son of God of God, and it would be written on the coins. Back in a time before mass media, before print, before social media or anything of that nature, how did you communicate your role, your, your rule or your lordship or your authority? For the emperors, there were two ways. One, 
they would build statues and they would put them at all the major cities. And matter of fact, even smaller cities, they'd put one on the outside. As you come to the gate, there'd probably be some on the inside. And you would see, oh, that is the emperor. That is the most powerful man in the known world. And he calls himself the son of God. And you would know. Matter of fact, that sometimes they'd have statues of his wife and of his family members. And that's how you knew who was in charge. That was the reminder. That was the communication. And in coinage. So you see the face, the image of the Son of God. So that's big talk. So as Paul is sharing this with the Colossians, I mean, it would have been startling to anybody outside of that circle to hear that terminology. It was very, uh, very aggressive. It was uh, very controversial. And in this time, as Paul is sending this letter, something interesting has happened. The old emperor has been disposed and there's a new emperor coming on to the throne. This guy's young, he's sharp, he's uh, very charismatic. Matter of fact, uh, one quote philosophers say, he could charm the birds out of trees. He was an actor, he was a singer. He had been a mind, he'd led victory for the military and the armies respected him. He was so charismatic, so sharp and his tutor, uh, was Seneca, who was one of the greatest teachers and philosophers of the first century. He has it all going for him, and he is super sharp, good-looking, young. And he's coming on the throne as the son of God. And his name is Nero. Nero, the one that's credited with burning Rome and blaming the Christians. The one who let all of this talent and all of this excitement that the Roman Empire and all those, they thought, oh, Nero's coming. It'll be better now. We'll see justice. We'll see, uh, lack. We'll see everybody being taken care of. There'll be peace throughout the land. Oh, Nero is our hope. And he called himself his hope. He's the Lord. He's the son of God. And so now Paul's saying, Jesus is the son of God. You see the consternation there. Let's look at our text, Colossians chapter one, and let's see here what scripture teaches us. Austin read earlier uh, the passage that I was talking about. I wanna start in verse nine. And this right here is a prayer. We talked about during our prayer series, praying the scripture. This is an excellent passage to pray for your children, for your grandchildren, your spouse, for whoever. This is a great way to pray scripture. And Paul prays this, found again in Colossians chapter one, beginning with verse nine. Let's read that together. Colossians one, nine. And the Bible says, and so from that day, we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you, put your son or daughter's name there or your friend's name there, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's such a powerful prayer to pray, particularly for someone that you love, for someone that you have leadership over. And so continuing verse 10, he says, as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Great prayer. It's for you to pray. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. And then in verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. He delivered us from sin, from the homardiology, and transferred us to his kingdom of his beloved son. In verse 14, tells us very clearly the gospel, in whom we have redemption. We have redemption. Why? Because of Jesus. We can be made right before God because of Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. So great prayer, great encouragement Paul is giving to this young group of believers who have other philosophies that are trying to eat their way into the fellowship. Uh, people coming out of Judaism and talking about how they have to keep the law or others who were out of Gnosticism and saying everything physical is bad, only the spiritual. Anything physical you, you can't be a part of if you truly want to have the spirit. Different religions, whether they be Greek, uh, whatever they were, there was a temptation, and there always is still today, to try to mesh those together. It's called syncretism. I believe a little this, a little that, take this from this religion, this from this religion. We've got to put them together, and that makes what I believe. Well, that's syncretism. That's not the gospel. That's not what Scripture teaches. The Scripture is very clear as it teaches us who is Jesus, that salvation comes by faith alone, through grace, or excuse me, by grace alone, through faith. It's by grace, through faith, not plus anything else. And so Paul is addressing this in this church, and he says here, and this is the hymn. It's a poem. It's a hymn that was sung, and it's this rich doctrine that Paul establishes for the Colossians. And he says this, and so from that day, we heard, excuse me, and he's, verse 15, and he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. Now, let's stop him. I want you to understand what each of these terms mean. He is the image of the invisible God. In other words, God is spirit. He is invisible, but Jesus became God in the flesh and he became visible to us. He is the exact image. He is the original. So uh, a way to think about this is when we think of uh, an image is to think of a sun. That's the metaphor that God chooses to use. It's like a son who's the spitting image of his father. All right? So when you think of it in that manner, uh, Jesus is God, and he's the image. He is who God is. All the characteristics, all the qualities, all the divinity of Jesus. And he came, and he lived here on earth so that we might know God and, be, and receive the grace and forgiveness through his death on the cross. He says he's the firstborn of all creation. What does that mean, the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that he was born. Matter of fact, I was reading a study this week that said only 41% of Americans believe that Jesus existed before the birth in Matthew in the story of the manger. That's what most people think. 
But that's not what scripture teaches. What does it mean he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, this is a Jewish term. We have to understand the Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, when a boy came of age, the oldest son, he was given primary responsibility of the family, of the farm or whatever it might be. As the father aged, he became less and less involved, but he represented the father. But when you talk to the son, you were talking to the father. When he gave the orders, they were from the father. That's why Jesus said in the gospel of John, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Big time. That's what it means to be firstborn. Established. It's honor. It's rank. It's authority. In verse 16, you continue. For by him, all things were created. In him on earth, visible and invisible. For by him, all things were created. He's eternal. Um, let's look at John chapter one, verse one through three. And this is uh, Paul, again, speaking. This is exactly what John said. In the beginning was the word. The word is Jesus. That's a metaphor for Jesus. In that day, uh, the word was the purpose of life. Uh, it's the understanding of life. And in the beginning was the word, was Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. In verse two, he was in the beginning with God forever, eternal. Verse three, all things were made through him. All things were made through Christ and without him was nothing, anything made that was made. So Christ was there when the foundation of the world was being laid. He created and he is the ruler and ultimate authority of all things and of all creation. We move on and we see next, Paul shares with us that uh, in verse 17, and he is before all things. He is eternal. He is infinite. And in him, all things hold together. Now, um, I was reading an article this week uh, about astrophysicists. This guy named um, Roger Meyer was saying this. He said, you know, uh, the total mass of all matter is not enough to provide the gravity needed to keep everything in the universe from flying apart. So certainly there are things flying around, but why does the universe stay intact? What's holding the universe together? And a, a big chunk of scientists, probably even the majority of science, say they have detected a cosmic force and hypothesized that it's this. It's called dark matter. Can't see it, can't control it, can't um, understand it. A lot of questions, a lot of thoughts about this. But at the end of the day, dark matter. They just know it's there. And it's acting as a, uh, as a kind of a glue, in, so to speak. Matter of fact, there's other words and glue. There's all kinds of things that you can study, but it's interesting. We still don't completely understand. We just know there's something there that's holding things together. That's what verse 17 says. And in him, all things hold together. Verse 18 Scripture tells us this. He is the head of the body, the church. Now that's probably the easiest one for us to understand. And we recognize that we are his children. We are the body of Christ. And he is the head. He is the beginning, the alpha, the omega. Without end, without beginning. The firstborn from the dead. Now what does that mean? The firstborn from the dead. 
Well, Jesus came and lived as man, fully man, fully God. And he took the sins of the world upon him and he suffered and died on our behalf. But then he rose again, conquering sin and death. And what happens? And he entered into the one who was invisible, became physical. He entered into what? His new resurrected body. It's a picture of what we will be one day for all who know him after we die and we are resurrected in the image of God, in perfection, in the way it was meant to be, in the way that God had designed without sickness, without death, without flaw. And Jesus is the first one to be resurrected into that new life, in that new body. You say, well, Lazarus died. Yeah, but he just went back to his old body, okay? That in everything, he might be preeminent. That's a big word. It means supreme. It means the top. There is none above. He is the utmost. He is the greatest. He is supreme over all individuals and over all things, over this universe. He is supreme. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. For in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What is he talking about? Paul is saying this about Jesus, that in Jesus was the totality of God. All of the wisdom, all of the power, all of the knowledge, all of the God characteristics and attributes in Jesus. Pleroma, the presence of God dwells. And then verse 20, the Bible tells us, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or heaven. To reconcile, he's the reconciler. No one else could have made relationship right with God. But through Jesus, we are reconciled through the redemption and we're given restoration. We're given eternity. And he is making peace because if you read the next passage, the next, literally the next verse, it tells us that we were hostile toward God. And you think, oh, I'm not hostile. It's never what do you mean by that is you just do, go in your own way. It's like uh, the king tells you to do one thing and you just do whatever you want. In Jesus, through the death, burial, and resurrection, through the blood of the cross, we are given peace when we transfer our trust by faith and receive that grace. And that's huge. So Paul is making it abundantly clear to the Colossian church. This is who Jesus is. There is no equal. He is God. He possesses all the qualities and all the attributes and all the power. He is God in the flesh. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, who we call God. And if you pull Jesus out, if you pull the Christology out, if you pull any of this out of who Jesus is and you just make him a teacher, you just make him a guru, you just make him a prophet, then there is no faith. As Paul said, we are of all men most to be pitied. You know, when Christopher Columbus uh, came in 1492, of course, he left Spain. Queen Isabella commissioned him, paid for his journey. And so 
Christopher Columbus believed that the world was round. And by the way, uh, popular to my third grade opinion, uh, he wasn't the only one. Uh, there were a lot of uh, bright men and scientists who believed that the world was round at that point. But what they believed was, you know, it's, it's probably a couple thousand miles away, but it's not that far, relatively speaking, to the Indies. Indies being Japan and China and India, where there were spices and uh, multiple trade uh, commodities that were wanted by the rest of the world. And so if they could get a ship there, man, that would be the mother of, that'd be hitting the jackpot and the nation of Spain would just be richer all for it. They would be the dominant power and they were probably the most powerful country in the world at that point. But they would be the dominant power at that point. So Queen Isabella commissioned him to go. So Christopher Columbus takes off and he lands in the Bahamas thinking that it's the Indies. And so because of his naivety, he calls them Indians. That's where the term came from. And he doesn't understand that he's about 10,000 miles away. Probably further than that because he'd have to go around South America. If there was a Panama Canal, it'd be 10,000 miles, which there is no Panama Canal. And he doesn't understand the magnitude of North America, South America, and then the ridiculous size of the Pacific Ocean. He didn't understand that he missed that. He thought he was there. He thought he had arrived at his destination. He thought this is, this is what we've been looking for. But he was wrong. Great discovery, don't get me wrong. But he had not made the because he didn't realize the magnitude and the width of the lobe of the earth. And if we come and we only see Jesus one dimensional, we only see him, oh, he's the guy that forgives me of my sins, then we miss a lot. And as we read scripture and we see uh, just how magnificent, how wonderful Christ is, all that he is, hopefully that causes us to be humble and recognize that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground, Matthew 7, is sinking sand. What about you today? What about your relationship with Christ? What about your understanding of Christ? As you read Colossians, as you read scripture, it grows us in the knowledge and the wisdom. As we pray, it gives us that insight. It gives us that understanding. And here's the truth. Without Jesus, we look like a bunch of people that are dancing without music. Have you ever seen somebody dance without music? Like maybe you've turned it on YouTube or something. People, or maybe even uh, you just see people sometimes and they look silly, don't they? Doesn't make any sense. Looks goofy. Then when you turn on the music, ah, makes sense. Move into the music and you want to move. Can I tell you this? In the gospel, Jesus is the music. And the world might see us dancing, but if they don't see Jesus, it looks like we're not. It looks like we're just being silly. So we want to be all about the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ Jesus. Do you know him? Have you transferred your trust from anything that you could do to what he's done? 
then I invite you to do that today. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you that while we're still sinners, you died for us. God, thank you for this beautiful hymn that teaches us the wonder and the magnificence of who you are, Jesus. Let us never forget that nothing matters outside of Jesus, that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is our reason, that Jesus is our purpose, that we were created by him and through him for him. And that is our purpose. And when we live outside of that paradigm, life will always not make sense. We will long for so much more than the sufficiency of Christ. So Jesus, I pray, if there's one that doesn't know you today, would you draw them by the power of the Spirit? Let them know the importance of establishing the fact that God, you are the creator of the universe, the sustainer, the alpha, the omega, and that because of our sin, we've broken fellowship. But the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus came and lived that life that you so desire for us to live and died that death that we so deserved and took our place on the cross through his blood. We are covered, we are forgiven, and we are in right relationship with you. Oh Lord, what a gift. Help us to grasp the largeness and the grandness of who Jesus is. Lord, for the one that doesn't know you, I pray that they'd transfer their trust right now and make that commitment and follow you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.